Anita, how's your mental health? <laughs> Questionable <laughs> at all times. You know this. Yeah. How's the mental health of your children? Um, also a little bit tricky. Can I tell you my experience in trying to find therapists for myself and my kids, Mel? Yes, please. Okay. This is how it goes. You ask around your friends and your family for a referral for somebody who's nearby. You finally find somebody who sounds like they might work for your family. You give them a call and you find out that A, they're not accepting new patients or B, they have a huge wait list. So you start over again and you ask people if they know anybody who would be a good therapist and a good fit. Finally, you find one, you go and you meet with them and you figure out that you don't actually like them that much. But it's been so much work to find somebody who you can go to in your area that you're kind of stuck with them. Well, do you have any ideas for how to get around this? Um, I do, because guess what? I've actually had some therapists that I have found on my own, which involves what you're saying. Sometimes I remember one time I was like three hours in the bathtub on my phone looking through yeah. websites. I was such a prune at the end. But I have also had the experience with working with BetterHelp and it was like, I, I don't want to say too good to be true, but because it is true, but it's like amazing because I was matched with my therapist within 24 hours. And you didn't have to go through all of that other ridiculous process of trying to find somebody. And here's the cool thing too, is if that person didn't work out for you, you can just switch and say, and it's not like you're committing to another years long search for somebody who you're going to jive with. It's true. And I lucked out or maybe just BetterHelp is really good at matching people together because I never had to change my therapist. I loved her. Perfect fit for me. And I know that some of our friends have used BetterHelp and they've had to change therapists and boom, same day can change. Easy peasy. You can ghost your therapist. <laughs> Get a new one. I love this idea. BetterHelp is one of our sponsors. If you use our promo code, trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN, you get 10% off your first month and we totally recommend it. Yes. Get some therapy. That's <laughs> trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN. One, two, three. Clap. Greetings. Hello. Happy monday what day is it really it's very confusing we record this portion on a sunday but everybody hears it on monday if they are caught up so who knows what day it is yeah it could be any day of the week depending on when you're listening to this and any time of the year mm. is it winter is it summer is it spring yes all of the above yes it is we had our zoom hang last night anita yes what did you think I was not able to attend the noon Zoom, but I was able to attend the seven, the evening Zoom, and we covered many interesting topics. I had a great time. Yeah. It was fun. Everything from roller, roller skates, skates to triggers to boundaries to candles, candles and plants everything in between. And we had some fun participants. So thanks everybody. And especially to our friend Autumn for heading it up. Yep. And we'll be doing it again next month. So if you missed out on this one, or you got confused about the times, or you happen to be in Hawaii, or Brazil or something next time. Yep. The second Saturday of every month. That's the plan. Make Stan. a note. Yep. What's up? Um, I'm stupid. That's what's up. 
are you really stupid <laughs> or do you just feel stupid? Um, good question. So yesterday I was so grouchy with my kids, like so irritable. Everything they were doing was making me so angry. And it was almost to the point of being comical, you know, like just really ridiculous out of this world annoyance. I was like, man, what is my problem? Why am I, why is everything that they do all the time bothering me so much more? I was even annoyed in my sleep. What? At them. I know. That's strong. They're they're ruining my life. Kind of a thing. And I woke up this morning and it was like, bing, light bulb. It's Jason's birthday on Tuesday. I am gearing up for, I'm having grief irritability. That is what is causing me to be so terrible. And I didn't even realize it until this morning. And then I was like, of course, because when I'm feeling that, I get I get irritable. I don't get sad and crying as much as I just get mean. Are they all scared of you right now? They were last night. They were like, what is going on? Because they're like, mom, can I give you a hug? And I'm like, no, <laughs> stay away from me. So you've had a couple years of getting to Jason's birthday and he's not here. Yeah. Does it come out of nowhere? Well, that's the funny thing is that I was preparing for it. I knew it was coming. I know it's coming. We were doing, we were making plans. I, so that's why I say I'm stupid that it, that I didn't realize that what I was feeling, I wasn't able to identify it early. And then as soon as I did identify it, I felt this weight lift off of me. Like, oh, I'm not just a mean person. You know, your body's remembering the trauma. Yeah. Mine does the same thing in October. And it always catches me off guard. Which is stupid. Because it's like October is... Scott didn't even die until November. But for some reason, October is terrible. And we've noticed the same things with Scott's family members. Really? Yeah. Which that's helped me to know that I'm not as crazy. Mm-hmm. And that At least real. you're crazy together. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Blessings to you. Namaste. I'm asking everybody to go for a bike ride and tag me and tag his um, Mr. Coyle's mustache. So if you go for a bike ride or if you do anything on wheels or even go for a walk, tag it on Instagram. Roller skates. Amy. Wear a helmet, though. We're looking at you. Helmet, knee pads, wrist guards, all of it. Bikes. Speaking of bikes, Anita. Uh-huh. My life has changed for the better, all because of a bike. Well, you took me for my first ride. Mm-hmm. It was very entertaining. Why? <laughs> Just because you were, you were so. It was like introducing somebody to something new. Mel was like, "I love this," but then she was also like, "I don't want to dip over." I really like riding up the hill. I'm a little trepidatious about coming down the hill. Yeah. I'm not quite Which sure. Which is backwards, by the way. Most yeah. people like to go down the hill and not up the hill. Well, since my bike is an electric bike, I love going uphill. I know. I was jealous. So tomorrow we're going to go riding. Are we going to put a mustache on us? We better. Yeah. You best. What? Somebody just broke into my bedroom. Maybe her wrath will come out right now. Let's listen. 
Yes. You're going to make bacon? Can I? You can sure try. But you have to clean up your mess. He's making bacon. Okay. That's, that's going to end well. <laughs> okay, Anita. What? I have been thinking of sports analogies this week uh-huh. that have to do with grief. Would you like to hear them? Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. You're like, not really, because I'm just angry, but <laughs> I'm going to say yes. I just wanted to make sure it was about like field hockey or something. I don't really know any about field hockey at this point, but maybe someday. Me neither. So when you were teaching me what to do on the bike, you said mm-hmm. one thing. Yes. And I was like... Yes, this changes my perspective totally. You said... Don't look at what you're trying to avoid. Look where you want to go. So if there's a big rock in the middle of the path, don't look at the rock and think, miss that rock, miss that rock, miss that rock. Look to the path that goes around the rock and focus on that. Immediately I thought, oh, it's just like grief mm-hmm. and life and skiing. So much of it reminded me of skiing. I kind of really miss skiing now. And the other thing is my dad and I were playing tennis yesterday, and it was the first time in the season that we've not played indoors because now the indoor facility, the time is over because it's seasonal. Mm -hmm. And so we've been playing in a controlled environment for the most part. The lighting is consistent. We don't have wind. We don't have anything like that. No flies. No flies. No leaves on the court. We know who is going to be playing on the court next to us, and there's a big curtain, and so the ball doesn't come into our court. So yesterday we were playing, and we sucked so bad. And I've also been in my mind thinking about goals because, you know, I mean, life is full of goals, but also with widow stuff, you're, you're trying to create your new life and figure out how to function and how to move forward and all this stuff. And so it was kind of overwhelming all the different changes at once. And so what I decided, it's like, okay, I'm here outside. There's wind. There's sun. I can't see what I'm serving. There are kids in the playground screaming, and it sounds like they're in trouble. There's a dog barking. (laughs) I think the dog's not okay. It sounds like he's hurt. You know, all this stuff. Too much stimulus. Yes. Too much input. I realized that it was a little bit overwhelming, and it would have been better if I could have... uh, lessened the external distractions which yeah. i don't know how i'm gonna be successful with that in tennis but it did oh make i me know think about i know i know what your earplugs and an eye cover oh okay <laughs> i'll just play tennis in a vacuum yeah because black. then you won't be distracted by too much light or the noises yes yeah so i thought about this with life goals and widow goals and just normal day-to-day goals. And I think a lot of times we think, well, okay, now I'm out in the real world and now I have all these extra stressors and I have to function at a certain level with dealing with every single one of these. And to be honest, we can control some of those things. And so if it's in our capacity, in our control to maybe lessen some stressors, it might be good for progress so that you get positive feedback in your brain and that you're actually able to like feel rewarded and not discouraged. But then some of the things you can't control. So it's like trying to figure out what you can control and what you can't control and your priorities in in those different areas. 
and then beating everybody at tennis. That's what Anita wants to do because she only cares about winning. Mm-hmm. She didn't like it when I beat her up the hill with my e-bike. I sure didn't. I was pretty angry about it. I was like, if you were riding this bike, I would have beaten you. Of course. (laughs) Of course you would. (laughs) No argument. Speaking of winning, thank you for people who have rated and reviewed the podcast. We've gotten a few new reviews. (laughs) Speaking of winning. (laughs) I'm trying to win. I'm trying to win the podcast war. The podcast with herself. There is nobody else. I'm I just I like I like the happy feelings it gives me when we get reviews. So if you haven't rated and reviewed, go do it. And for those that have, thank you so much. We appreciate you so much. The reason why this is important is because when people are looking for resources, especially with early grief and they need a community, the reviews and the ratings really help the visibility so that people realize that we actually have something that could potentially help them. So all of you that are in the Widow Wives Club know this. All of you that listen to the podcast that we have not offended and alienated, of course, <laughs> understand this. So if you have not done it, we're going to give you a second to go do it. Ready? Pause the podcast. Ready? Pause. Bloop. Go. Okay, we're back. Hopefully you, you wrote us a screaming awesome review. Yeah, it's not just for my desire to win. It's all the stuff that Mel said, too. It's because I care about that, but you care about winning. It's a win-win, hopefully. Hey, can I tell you something funny that happened yesterday, though? Yeah. I took my children to um, a a theme park that's near our house. It's called Lagoon. It's like Disneyland, but way not as fun. But they love it. Anyway... So I took them there with instructions to meet me at a certain time because I was just taking them by themselves, which is kind of on the edge of neglect. Yeah, we'll (laughs) just call it what it is. But I mean, they're 10 and 7, so almost 11, almost (laughs) 8. And they know how to get home and it's fine. Anyway, I said, you're going to meet me at this time and I'll come pick you up and we'll go home. Well, I went there and of course they did not meet me. And I told them, because I thought this might happen. I said, I will wait here for 15 minutes. And if you don't come, then you have to walk home. So they didn't come. And it's like, it's like a mile away from our house. So it's really not that far. So they don't come and then I start to, you know, question my mothering and think it was probably a bad idea to send them by themselves and they're probably going to get kidnapped and sold to the circus. And so I'm in my head and I'm all (laughs) nervous about them. And this was right before our Zoom started. So I decided to just jump back in the car and just go see if I could find them. So I drive back and I find them. They're almost on there. They're almost home. They get in the car and I'm like, you know, how did it go? And they're like, so great. Oh, okay. And they're like, we found $20 and bought ourselves dinner. And I was like, see, these kids are going to be successful because not only were they okay by themselves, but they fed themselves dinner with money they probably stole from me before they went. Very resourceful. Yeah. And they were so happy. They're like, we got two hamburgers and fries. And one of them's like, and that's all. And then my other son goes, no, we bought a Sprite too. And the other one goes, shh, <laughs> don't tell that part. So that's their like, kid's dream. I know. They're sort of like um, street urchins, I feel like, you know, providing for themselves, pickpocketing to pay for their hamburgers. That's Aladdin was a street youth. A, a street youth. And also mm-hmm. um, Oliver was a street youth. And one of my children's name is Oliver. So Anita. Yeah. 
something huge has happened to arguably the most famous woman in the entire world. I know. She is one of us. My little sister asked if we were going to be inviting the queen to the Widow Wives Club. Do you think she would join? I emailed her and she has yet to respond. Dear queen, we respectfully invite you to attend the Widow Wives Club Zoom at 7 p.m. Please answer all the questions. Prince Philip has passed on. Queen Elizabeth is one of us. She's also 94. She'll probably live to be 180. So condolences to you, Queen Elizabeth. Yep. On this midpoint of your life. Okay, that's so funny because my grandma lived to be 98 and her husband lived to be 100 and he died when she was 94 and she said... My biggest worry is I just don't want to live as a widow longer than I lived as a married person. (laughs) I'm like, uh, so you're expecting to live 74 more years? She didn't. She either was terrible at math or she was a scientist that had information that she knew she could live longer. A secret elixir. An elixir of life. The fountain of youth. Yes, she didn't. (laughs) Man, 94 is a long time to be alive. Mm -hmm. Can we just talk about the fact that their entire lives have been in the spotlight and everybody feels privy to their their information? Yes. Can you imagine this? I was laughing because I was like, 100% of my knowledge of Prince Philip comes from the crown. 100% of it. Okay, I did watch another documentary that was probably put out by the palace. Oh, yeah. So I'm just confused now. Oh, really? Yeah, because the crown is storytelling. The crown is, you know. But I actually really liked him. I thought he seemed like a pretty, pretty awesome guy. And he was born on Corfu, which I was trying to visit. It's an island in Greece. I was trying to go there for my 40th birthday with my little sister. And then the pandemic shut that down because it's from my favorite show called The Durls in Corfu. And it's about a widow and her four kids. The Durls in Corfu. Did you make this up? No. Are you serious? No. It's the You're best. not serious. I am. I don't even know now if I am Wait, or I'm not. I thought you were making a joke that it was a show about you with your four no. kids. No. This is a real show? Yes. And I loved it before I was living it. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Premonition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you should watch it. Well, you might not appreciate it because you don't have kids. You might just be like, those kids are jerks. But I'm like, yep, 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 yep. Wow. The Durls in Corfu. The Durls? How do you even spell that word? D-U-R-R-E-L-L-S. Oh, Dur- Durls. It's their last name. If you were from the South, it would be like the Durrells. But they're English. I thought it was Durls, like girls with a D. Yeah, no. That's why I thought you made it up. It's it's on Amazon Prime right now. So okay, cool. right now I'm watching Escaping Polygamy. I cannot watch it yet. I'm very intrigued. And Mel disturbed. is super into cults right now. Oh, you guys, I am. I'm just fascinated by the mind control, and then I I like to empathize with the victims and be like, get out, get out, come on, let's help you. And I'm just interested in starting a cult because I hear it's highly lucrative. And you can get people to, like, do your laundry and stuff for you. Or you could just be a widow. But that's only valid for, like, a few months. People yeah, will stop doing true. it. They're, yeah, that's dead. I have an announcement. Oh, my gosh. Are you my pregnant? F- 
No, gross. <laughs> My first album of meditation music is live and available April 15th. It's available on iTunes, what? Spotify, Apple Music, all of the places. If you have a Spotify subscription, there it is. And you pay per month, it's free for you. If you want to buy the album off of iTunes, guess how much it is? It's like six bucks. It's so cheap. Hey. But it's a chakra meditation album and it goes through all the chakras and in with the music, the piano music and some other things I put in there, they have healing frequencies that correspond with each chakra. That sounds so fancy. So if you need some chakra balancing, my my meditation artist name is called Dromcat. I know it sounds weird. It's Swedish. Constance, you feel me. But I will post a link in the show notes. Can we do our patron shout out now? Yes. Maleficent the Great. Here we go. We're going to start with the dead husbands. And our first dead husband is a secret dead husband. And she says, do the widow thing. Support widows. Constance Dahlbach. David Kelly. Don Satterwhite. Ivan the Meisner. TM. R. No. Circle R. Oh, sorry. Dr. Ivan the Meisner. Circle R. Cat. And then we'll continue on with our widow wives and our widow besties. We'll start with Amy Sapp. Ashley Han. Danielle Catterberg. Fun to see you last night. Dennis Brazo. Jenny Taylor. Jenny Wang. Kirsten Stromberg. Laura Bradbury. Missy Schubert. Also good to see you last night. Your headboard was cute. Yes. Do you think she feels like you're stalking her now? Mm-hmm. Probably. Okay. I hope she does. Rachel Barbosa, we're going to stalk you at your cabin. <laughs> Sarah Morris. My mom. Karen Cornejo. Anna Tracy. Christina Scambato. Christine Anderson. Who may or may not be dead. Diana Becker. Emily Thornton. That's just because her in-laws listed her as dead in an obituary for a family member. That's why I say that. Okay. Emily Toledo. Aaron Posick. Gabe Lozano. Ileana Bell-Ruiz. Ooh, one of my favorites. Jamie Aliota. My mom. Jenny Barrow. The Fancy Lady Joy. Kirsch. Katie Radtastic. Radcliffe. Kara Scara Prowett. Lori Farrington. Marie Hoffman. Can't wait to see the backyard. If you build it, they will come. Marjorie Lewis. Mary McGowan. Shannon Helm. Tammy Schwartz. Tara Wallace. Houndstooth Pattern Wendy. <laughs> Houndstooth. <laughs> Valerie the Red Packer. Thank you, everybody who supports the podcast and helps keep it going. If you're interested in becoming a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash WWDN. I actually took Mel to tacos with the taco money you guys have supplied. So if you want to send us for tacos, it is buymeacoffee.com slash widow, widow we, we do, do now. now. Sometimes we assume that unless we had a huge life insurance payout, we don't really need to know anything about investments or even finances. But guess what? A little knowledge of finances is critical for all of us. Maybe your partner was in charge of that stuff, and now you find yourself making all the decisions. Maybe you're mad about that. Maybe I am. Nicole from the He's Gone But The Money's Not podcast is here to help. 
She tackles financial literacy by telling the stories of women and widows and finance experts and shares the lessons they've learned as certified financial planners. Whether you know a lot and feel confident in your financial decisions or feel unsure about all of that stuff, there is more to learn. Listen and subscribe to the He's Gone But The Money's Not podcast on all podcast platforms. This ad was paid for by Rock House Financial, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Mel, do you feel like you're going crazy sometimes? Um, all the time. Me too. I feel like I have too much to do and not enough time to get it done. Well, how can you deal with that? I don't know. But one of those things that we're supposed to do is take care of ourselves. Because when we take care of ourselves, then we're better able to take care of those around us. Do you feel like it's an extra responsibility that you have to find ways that you can take care of yourself? Sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be great if somebody thought of that for you? Um, yes, that would be amazing, especially if that package of ideas showed up without me having to do anything. Well, I have good news for you. Did you know that this actually exists? Yes. I know you know. no. (laughs) (laughs) Tell the people! Our friend Melissa has made the Filled with Gold boxes, which are self-care boxes designed to help widows especially take care of themselves so that they can better take care of the people that they're responsible for. Each box is filled with five to seven luxury items handpicked by Melissa and thoughtfully sourced. You can choose different subscription options between one month and a whole year. It's a great gift to give to somebody in your life who needs self-care, or you can just buy one for yourself and do it. And you know it is from a widow that has been where you are. Visit filledwithgold.org to find more information and make sure to use our coupon code WWDN for 10% off your boxes. Filledwithgold.org and use the promo code WWDN. Thank you. Bye. Let's get to our episode. I'm Anita. I'm Mel. We're two young widows. One of us is super cranky, and we're trying to figure out widow we do now. Oh, that was so sad. (laughs) That's how I feel. Well, welcome to our guest today. Today we have with us Melissa Gould. And sometimes, for some reason, we think her last name is something else. (laughs) You know what, though? I do like that you could interchange it with Ghoul, G-H-O-U-L, kind of goes along the death thread. It does go, it's, <laughs> um, it's theme related, so yes. Melissa, where are you recording from? Tell us a little bit about your background and where you live and what you do and those things. Uh, I'm here in Los Angeles where I live and I'm in my office today talking to you guys. And my background is that um, I'm here because I wrote this book called Widowish, which is my memoir. My background is that I'm here talking to you guys today about my memoir, Widowish, which came out last month. And um, prior to writing this book, I was a screenwriter and um, made my living as a writer for my entire adult life. Um, I never thought that I would write a book about being a widow. That is crazy. Um, But I always knew I wanted to be a writer. And when my husband died, a friend suggested that I start writing about it. 
And that was just um, a, a crazy idea to me because as I said, I made my living as a screenwriter where I wrote make-believe things and created worlds that seemed real, but weren't. Um, so the thought of writing something personal just never occurred to me. So wait, when you were young and a child, you didn't think to yourself, I want to grow up to be a widow? <laughs> no. Can you believe that? Because we certainly did. We were like, I want to grow up to be a doctor and a widow. That was on my list. And I've only accomplished one of those things. So um, that's disappointing. I thought you were a doctor, Anita. Okay, fine. Whatever. Technically, you are a doctor. <laughs> Technically. <laughs> I like the name of your book. So Widowish really came about because like the two of you, um, none of us look like widows, right? I mean, if we were together and not just virtually, but in a room together or imagine being in a restaurant and sitting the three of us at a table, we we're having like this fun, lively conversation. Anybody walking by would not think, oh, that's a table full of widows. And so I think where Widowish came to play is that I really didn't look like a widow, I'm too, too young, um, didn't act like a widow because even though I was heartbroken and bereft and completely traumatized, um, yeah, I was happy living my life in the world, but I felt like a widow and I still feel like a widow. And it's been a number of years since I lost my husband, but it was really that reconciling those things of not looking like a widow, not acting like a widow, but feeling like one and wanting people to know that I lost my husband. That was important to me. I didn't want to be perceived as God forbid divorced. I mean, I don't know why, but I just felt like, no, my husband and I were happily married. We were madly in love. We even liked each other. And I didn't want people to think otherwise. So I kind of embraced the word widow in that regard. Like, no, I was married, happily married, but I didn't, it didn't quite align. Well, when you think of widow, you think of the little old lady, you know, with her cats in her little cottage on the lane. So with her cute little hairdo, very short hair, and she only has to wash it once a week. Right? <laughs> I only wash mine once a week. I was going to say, Mel, I mean, that I'd was strangely specific. <laughs> I also only wash mine once a week now too. <laughs> yeah, just you know, and not and not to take away from listen, losing your spouse, your person is devastating at any age, but there is a life trajectory where we all assume when we say I do that we're gonna grow old together with her. And by old I mean, you know, eighties, seventies, eighties. So not to take away from widows who and widowers who are, I hate to even say like appropriately aged, but you know what I mean. It, when it happens when you're young and midlife, it's such a shock. It's so unexpected. Um, and that's what I mean when I say like, if we were all together, nobody would think that about us sitting there. But how long has it been since your husband died? It's been seven years. We met, um, we worked together at a record label here in Los Angeles. It was my summer job. It was Joel's like real job because he was a few years older than me. And um, we became friends. We were friends for a long time before we got romantic. But, but saying that, you know, when I did meet him, I thought I wanted to marry somebody just like him. 
one day. I never thought it was going to be him just because the timing was never right for the two of us until it was. And then when it was, we like, you know, our life joined and we got married and started a family and all that stuff. But for many years, the timing was just never right. We were really good friends and I loved his company and he made me laugh and he totally got me and he was really cool and really handsome. And I was like, that's the guy. What somebody just like him, and then I got him. Crazy, lucky ducky. Now I I have um, not finished your book, but I have. I'm about halfway through it, so I know part of your backstory, but I don't know how it ends yet. So I'm really interested to get there. You're a mystery to me. But do you want to tell us a little bit about Joel and um, kind of how he died? Yeah. So Joel had multiple sclerosis. Um, which is a devastating diagnosis to get um, because it's a chronic illness and basically MS affects your mobility. And Joel was an extremely active guy. Um, you know, he, he was like, he'd go to the gym every day. He rode his bike every day. He rode his bike to work. He played racquetball a couple times a week. As a kid, he was a skateboarder and a surfer and he was on a basketball team. So the fact that he was diagnosed with this disease that would prevent him from doing those active things that he loved to do was really something that we had to adjust to. Um, And it was because he had multiple sclerosis that he became susceptible to a mosquito bite. And that is what he died of West Nile virus, which is transmitted by mosquito. And this is all in the book, but the medication that he had been on for quite some time stopped being as effective, which is what happens with these autoimmune diseases and medication. Um, They stopped working after a while. So it was the transition from the one medication to a new one that his body just wasn't responding to the new medication. And a couple of things were done as protocol, which lowered his immune system even more. And that's what made him susceptible to a mosquito bite. But we knew none of that I mean, he's probably bitten by a mosquito. And then a month later, he and I walked into an emergency room together. We made that decision together and they admitted him into a room. And then the next day he kind of started falling into a coma. And then the following day he was in a coma and he stayed like that for three weeks until he died. And it was in the third week that they definitively diagnosed him with West Nile virus. Which is so crazy. That's one of those things that you hear about and people say, oh, it's really dangerous, but you never, ever hear of anybody actually in your personal circle dying from it. So it's probably pretty shocking to hear that as a diagnosis. Like, what? Okay. Well, it's funny because they they kind of suspected it at, in the very beginning that it was a virus. They were looking, like searching his body, like inch by inch for like a welt or a bite or something that would indicate a mosquito bite, but you know, how do you protect yourself from a mosquito bite? Like it's so crazy. So, um, it was a devastating diagnosis because by the time they diagnosed him, the virus had completely done its job. And by that, I mean, it it wreaked havoc on his central nervous system, his brain function. I mean, he had brain damaged, He was paralyzed. So it was kind of like this surreal time in the hospital where 
I kept waiting for the diagnosis thinking, okay, well, once we have it, they'll make him better. They'll give him the anecdote. They'll give him, but you know, viruses don't work that way. There's no antibiotic. There's no cure. We're seeing that with COVID, um, which is tragic that, you know, here I was and that you guys like, you know, were young widows and now there's so many more. It's so, it's so true. And it's so hard. It's, we're witnessing it in real time, kind of the same thing. Like we know what's wrong with you. We can't do anything about it. Yeah. I mean, and I, and a lot of it is familiar because viruses are similar in the way they run their course. So I hear some of these horror stories and it's like, yep, I was there. I was there. It was West Nile virus, but I know I, you know, I speak virus now. I speak virus fluently. So my mother-in-law had MS. And when I met my husband, she was able to walk and get around. And I watched her slowly decline to the point where she couldn't walk. She couldn't do anything for herself, could, could barely even feed herself. And it was just, it's a tragic disease because it takes somebody with so much vitality and vibrance and just kind of strips that away from them. And it's somewhat unpredictable because some people have it and they don't have those symptoms. And then some people it's devastating. And so it's kind of like, you're not sure what you're going to get from it. And kind of similarly, I mean, she was in her 60s, but she just got like pneumonia and her body just couldn't fight off, you know. That actually happened to my aunt too. My aunt got diagnosed with MS around age 21 and she ended up having kids. We didn't know if she would be able to have them, but I remember she met my uncle when I was still a teenager. And so I watched her slow decline. She was able to water ski when I first met her. And then it was like, she was kind of rickety standing up and then full on wheelchair, had kids. And then by the last kids, she couldn't hold her own babies. Uh. And I ended up being kind of a home health aide. So it was it was eye-opening to see a lot of those things. And, and unfortunately, two weeks after she gave birth to twins, one twin being special need and in the hospital, she ended up dying from pneumonia, just like Anita's mother-in-law. So... Man, I mean, for somebody that was so active like Joel, my aunt was the same way. That is a grief journey for him and for you. Like, you're, you are not unfamiliar with grief. How would you compare the grief of his diagnosis and watching his decline versus him dying and you being a widow? That's such a great question. And my answer to that is that there definitely was a grief period that we went through. First with the diagnosis, um, the thing is when he, he was diagnosed and we were living with MS for about four or five years and then he died. Um, but in the very beginning, when he got diagnosed with MS, the medication worked great. So obviously he did have to make some changes in his life. So I said, you know, he played basketball once a week. He was on a softball team. He went, he still went to the gym every day, but he had to kind of trade um, basketball and softball and racquetball for yoga. But he found a yoga studio that he loved. He got me into yoga. It was kind of like anti-yoga yoga. What you know, it was like they played rock music and they played really cool. I was like, what does anti-yoga mean? Like they're like, we hate yoga while you're yogaing. Heavy metal yoga. You know, there were classes dedicated to like Ozzy Osbourne and you know, just playing Ozzy music or what. So that's what I mean. And like all of the teachers were like recovering drug addicts, and you know, it, it was they were it was. It was a fun place. It wasn't like you walked in and namaste and the gong. and the, the, It was like you walked in, there's music and it, cool and whatever. And I'm, there was a vibe to it. 
And it spoke to him. He was always in the music industry. So that was the other thing that changed for him. Like he um, couldn't go to concerts if he didn't have a seat. And because he was in the industry, he would go as like a VIP, you know? So he always had like a place to sit or, but there were a lot of times where he would just want to go see an up and coming band in some small club and he couldn't because there wouldn't be a place for him to sit or even going to Coachella. You know, he went to Coachella every year from like the very beginning. Um, and towards the end, he just couldn't, he couldn't do it anymore because it just wasn't conducive to how his body started to function. So we, we managed in the very beginning, but it, in the last year of his life, the MS really was taking hold. And that's partially also why we were looking for a new medication Um, but that last year was full of grief for both of us because we really saw, and Joel was young. He had just turned 50, um, and died a few months later, but it was very scary to think about what was coming our way with the MS. There was definitely a grieving period because things were just getting progressively worse and, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to stop it. The hope is that the medication will stave off the symptoms, but that wasn't happening. So it was, it definitely in some ways prepared me for losing him, but obviously we, you know, we would have figured it out. We, we, as, as scared and as anxious as we were about the impending ways MS was going to be hitting him even harder um, it did in some ways prepare me for losing him. It sounds like you had kind of the worst of all of the worlds because you had this slow decline and kind of a grief period and loss of function and then a sudden death also, you know, a quick, like you thought things were going to keep going and then all of a sudden he's gone. So that's kind of a ripoff. Sorry. I was going to say that too. It's like we are both sudden death widows. So we always ask people what it's like to have that long journey of health declining. And so, yeah, listening to your story, it's like, dang, you got it all. Kind of both at the same time. But you know what? Like, it's it's crazy because I now know a lot of widows. And, you know, you sometimes have that conversation, like, which is worse? Like, one of my closest friends who's in the book, her husband left for work that morning, never came home. You know, dropped dead on his way to a meeting. Um, And then I have other friends whose husbands and wives um, had horrible kinds of cancers and they were their caretaker for years. I mean, and in ways, and they saw their, their loved ones decline in ways that sounded horrific. So I don't know that there's any like, you know, like it's not like you could pick, Oh, this sounds so much better than that. Like, it's all bad. Anita and I were talking and it's like, because I have no kids. Anita has kids. And and we're always like, which one is worse? To not have a future or some some link to your dead spouse or to be having to help all these kids navigate grief. And it's like, we try to frame things in a worse than. And the reality is that everything is so different. Like everything is case by case. But isn't it interesting that we always try to think of that comparison game like every widow ever does it yeah I said this to a friend of mine last night like you know so so we had one child our daughter and I always said you know she's an only child and I became an only parent I I don't for me I don't like the word single parent because 
that implies there was like a choice to me. It feels that way. Um, so I call myself an only parent, but oftentimes I think if I did have another kid or if my daughter had a sibling, I sometimes wish for that. Not, I don't know that that would be easier for me, but I feel like it would have been easier for her because then she would have had somebody to compare the experience with or to share the experience with, um, and not just have me, her mother (laughs) to talk about it with. You know, like, I feel like having somebody in close in age for her probably would have been helpful. And she was 13 when Joel died, Uh right? So that is a tricky age. Anita can totally relate with that. I know. I was going to, I was just going to say, can you just please tell me that she has turned out to be a well-adjusted and non-horrible 20-year-old, please? She's so not horrible. Oh, good. (laughs) She's the most like delicious, sweet. She gets all of her goodness from Joel. Like all of her best qualities resemble Joel so much. And no, she's a great kid. You know, so much of her teenage years, you know, she was in eighth grade when Joel died. So I feel like that's a very tender age and very sensitive. And she's a sensitive kid to begin with, but so much of her teenage years, like going to high school, learning to drive, new friends, you know, tattoos, ear piercings, all of that stuff. I was like, now is she, is this because her dad died or is this just normal teenage stuff? And really what I've come to learn is the answer doesn't matter. Like this was her experience and this is her life. And she really is such a good kid. Um, but it was difficult. It, it was just the two of us. And it very. we have a lot of love and support and family and close friends who really have been there for both of us. But it's it's hard. It's been hard. Yeah, I have a I have a 14 year old right now and I keep running into my desk and her dad um, was 12. No. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He was a young was father. Terrible. He was only 12. <laughs> I'm sorry. She was 12 when he died, and I have had those same exact thoughts. She has dealt with a lot of panic and anxiety, and I thought, is this because dad died, or would this have happened? Would this have been the natural trajectory of her growing up? Because being a teenager is weird and so bizarre. So it's like, what is this, you know? I know, and like your person's not there to ask. Like, I don't have Joel to ask. Like, was she always like this? Yeah. Like, you remember exactly. their time? Like, that's the thing about grief that I think nobody really talks about is you don't have like the memory keeper anymore or the person who shared that experience with you to question or even like, you know, if I lost something, I'm like, do you remember, hun? Like, where was that thing with the thing that we needed for the, you for know, the thing. and like, yeah. And it's like, that kills me. Like, those are the moments that kill me or like, when our daughter does something and I'm like, and I say, Oh my God, I think she did that when she was five, but like, who am I asking? There's no, just to corroborate my story. So that stuff really gets to me. I think you touched on kind of something important there too. And that is, I think that's the difference with grief of a spouse and grief of, for instance, a child or a parent is that your person the person that you go to, the person that you're in partnership with is the person that's gone. And I'm not saying it's easy to lose a child or it's easy to lose a parent, but you still have that 
your partner to grieve with. And the person that you want to grieve with is the person that's gone. And so that's so crushing. It's so true. It's like a pillar of a building has fallen down. On top of you. One of the big pillars. Yes. I have a question, Melissa. I write music. I'm a performer, all that stuff. And when my husband died, it changed my relationship with my creativity. Have you noticed any differences since Joel's passing with your creativity? Well, in the sense that I I just mentioned a, a little bit ago, which is that it never would have occurred to me to start writing about myself or my life experience or anything that I was living through. I always took comfort in writing these make-believe stories. So, I mean, maybe I would have gotten to it eventually, but I never considered myself to be like an essayist or a memoirist or, um, you know, somebody that wrote about myself. But once I started doing that, I really tapped into something that I needed. I mean, I have to say that writing about all of this and this whole experience has really been the most healing thing I could have done. Now, I didn't know that um, when I started doing this. Actually, I, I, I did know it pretty quickly because I started writing essays and I couldn't stop. Like there was just, I just had so much to say about my experience of being like the town widow and the things people said to me and the things that, um, how they responded to, to me being out in the world and being an only parent and all of these things. Like once I tapped into it, I realized like, this is what's going to save me. So in that sense, it changed my creativity, but not really, not really. I mean, I, I'm, st- I was always been a writer. I'm still writing. It's just like a different muscle, I guess. Okay. Were you tempted to throw some really crazy facts into your own story screenplay style? You know, just to pep it up a little bit, give it, you know, some twists and turns and surprises. Maybe some monsters and zombies? No, I didn't have to do that because the story itself, you know what they say, like truth is stranger than fiction. That's true, yeah. I am the walking embodiment Mm. of that, so... Well, I, I feel like Man. there might have been a missed opportunity. We're always talking about, you know, like Joel was really alive and he had a twin brother and you were married to the bad twin. It was a body double. Maybe we'll save that for like the sequel. Maybe that's, yeah. So I'm curious, That was something you just said made me think that the reception you got as the town widow was sometimes confusing for you or maybe made you feel like people thought that you were acting a different way than you should be acting according to their definition of what a widow should act like? Yeah, I think people would have been much happier or had a much better understanding if I never left the house and the windows were closed and the lights were always off and dark. And every time they saw me, I was crying and had like a tissue, you know, clinging to a tissue. And, um, and just completely like a zombie, like one of you just said zombie. <laughs> like I would have been like the the zombie walking through town, picking up my kid from school, going to the market. Like I think there there definitely is that expectation about the widow that they should always be sad and bereft and inconsolable. And I was those things most of the time, but you know, for the five minutes a day, I could pull it together to go to Trader Joe's. That you know, it would take that window. 
Yeah. And it's interesting, I find, that you can feel all of those things on the inside of you and still be functioning like what a normal human looks like to function. But inside, you're feeling that deep pain, even as you're picking out which avocados are ripe. Yes. You know, you don't look like somebody who's dying inside, but inside you just feel crushed all of the time. And people think, oh, she must be fine because I even saw her smile. So, oh, did you find that people held that expectation for a longer period than you thought? Because you had, you know, seven years to to experience this. Was it only for the first little while that people expected you to be like that? And then they wanted you to be done with your grief or? No, actually, that didn't happen because within a year of losing Joel, I started dating. I haven't gotten that far. Dang it. Um, (laughs) Spoiler alert. Um, But no, I started dating somebody who I, I knew peripherally. And everybody also knows him. I don't want to spoil it for you. It's okay. Anita, but, um, I won't listen to this podcast until I'm done <laughs> with the book. Um, but but no, but because I started dating again, like it was less than a year, maybe I think around eight or nine months or 10, eight, nine or 10. Um, I think that threw people too. And in two ways, one, there was a lot of judgment. Like, I can't believe he's dating again, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and this is in the book, but you'll act surprised when you get to that part. But I, I went to a party with my boyfriend and literally had not even been there two minutes. And a woman pulled me aside and she was like, you're here on a date. When did your husband die again? So that was one version. And then the other version that I got was, oh, Melissa's fine now. She's dating. And I hated both because neither one was true. I wasn't fine. I'm still not fine. I mean, listen, I, the, the guy I was dating, we're still together and that's been six years and he's great. And I love him and we have a wonderful relationship, but I still feel married to Joel. I still feel like Joel is my husband. And I also really resented that idea that because there was another man in my life that I was better. Mm-hmm. So you have to tell Mel about your your visit with the medium what yes i love these stories that's where i just that's where i got to in the book was just listening about the medium so i was wondering if that's where we were going but i didn't know what the outcome was going to be well the thing that the medium says to me so i'm there i'm like hysterical crying like the minute i walk in she's telling me your husband's here i knew this was your husband she was confused so it was funny because she didn't realize that my husband, that we were young. So even the psychic, like I walked in and she was like, I'm confused. I didn't know your husband was so young. I I knew there was like a man here in love with you. And, but then when she saw me and then whatever vision she had of Joel, she was very confused, but you know, got on board immediately. And, and um, it was just, just kind of giving me affirmations that Joel was still with me, that he was, okay with everything in my life and that I was doing a great job with our daughter and blah, blah, blah. And then in the midst of telling me all of this great lovey stuff about Joel, she's like, okay, and then there's another man coming and you already know him and he has a son. And I was like, what? Like it was so the furthest thing from my mind. And I was annoyed because I just wanted to keep hearing about Joel. But then she goes on and on and on about this person that I already know. And then of course, I'm like, I don't know. Who who do I, I I don't know anybody. Like I I couldn't, it just kind of threw me. But um, yeah, so she made this prediction about 
the guy I'm currently with and have been with. I want to know how she knew that because the person you're currently with is obviously not dead. So like, I'm kind of curious about the mechanics, but quantum mechanics, Anita, the butterfly effect. This is string theory. I'm just making stuff up. Melissa, how did you feel when you heard that there was another man possibly coming into your life? That's not what I walked away from that reading with per se. Like it stuck with me because I was like, that's so weird. Like I'm not interested. And then it was also the mystery of like, who is this guy? You know, who, who could it be? I, I already know him. So everybody I saw, I'm like, is that him? Is that him? Is that... But, um, is it the dog walker? Is it that guy at the park? Is it the checker yeah. at the grocery store? Yeah. I mean, it could have been the mailman. I, mm. I didn't know who she met. Um, I mean, then it came, became very clear, but, um, yeah, I, I just, I wasn't, I certainly wasn't looking to be in a relationship at that point. And even when she brought him up, she said something like, it's not going to last long. And that, and your husband is okay with it. She basically was telling me, Joel is fine with it. Joel approves. And it was very intriguing, but it wasn't, again, like I, I, I wasn't going to see her to find out about my future. I was going to see her to see if Joel was going to show up. And Joel was there waiting for me. So I'm super curious about how your daughter dealt with you moving on to another relationship. She hated it and um, had a lot of difficulty with it. And in some ways she still does. Like she's not entirely comfortable with it, but I think with her growing older and there's a level of maturity now, obviously at 20 that she didn't have at 13 and I think um, she's happy to see me with somebody who makes me laugh and who I have a nice relationship with. Like, I think, um, and she also knows that she's my priority no matter what. And that has always been crystal clear. So that I think has helped, but I really don't judge her for feeling that way. Like I completely get it. And I kind of just give her the room to have her feelings. I don't try to convince her like, Otherwise, like these are her feelings, they're hers to own. And I'm not going to negate that. Like I completely get it. Um, But I think ultimately she's happy for me, but it took a while. It took a while for her to really wrap her young mind around it. And I completely get why. Yeah. We're my, I'm not dating or anything, but my, my daughter who I, you know, is 14, even if I go somewhere and there's men there, she's like, what are you doing there? And I'm like, I'm going to a work meeting and she's like, who's going to be there? And I'm like, whoa, you know, I don't know how to deal with this kind of situation where she's very invested in nothing ever happening with me ever, ever again. And I'm like, what do I, you know, what would I do if that were to present itself? And so I, I don't know. Did you ask her her opinion? Did you ask her her feelings about it or did you just kind of move ahead and say, this is what I'm doing and this is why. And Um, I think I kind of just said, this is what I'm doing. Okay. Um, But that being said, she had plenty of room to talk about it with me. Like I wasn't going to change my behavior unless it was really detrimental. Like if there was something that was really detrimental and sending her back and I absolutely would have like cut things off, but I just let her know, like things were, her fear was that 
I could always have another husband, but she'll never have another father. Yeah. Oh. Um, and I just have reassured her, especially back then, that that would never be the case. That, you know, her dad is always going to be my husband. Even if I did get remarried, I still feel like Joel is my husband and I'll just have another one if it comes to that. But what's your yeah. what's your new partner's name? Marcos. Marcos. How how does Marcos deal with you still being in love with somebody else? Yeah, he's a very confident <laughs> person. He's a musician. Oh. Um, and he knew my husband. So I think the fact that they knew each other has kind of helped both of us, like all of us, really. Um, because there's no mystery. There's no like competition in a way. Like I've heard from other widows that they feel like the new person is competing with their spouse who died. And it's, it's a weird, I don't quite get that. That's a weird thing for me, but, um, I don't have that. And I just think Marcos is very confident. He's very respectful, very respectful. Like he really understands that it's me and my daughter and him. what does Marcos play? Um, he plays the blues. He plays guitar. I knew it. They're always very confident. Blues players or just guitar players in general? Guitar players. Yeah. I mean, he's a singer, songwriter, guitarist. Yeah. Very cool. Melissa, how long did it take you to write your book? When did you start? You know, it's a whole thing when you're writing a nonfiction book, because the way you go about getting it published is different than writing a fiction book, which is basically you send that to your agent like the book in total, and then they sell the book. When you're writing nonfiction or a memoir, in my case, I'm writing a book proposal. That took about a year. And it's a document. It's basically like a marketing document. Like, this is the overview of the book. This is what the book is about. Here's why I am writing the book. Here are other books and similar, like, this is, these are the books that would be sitting next to on the shelf at the bookstore. Like, it's a in-depth marketing, and then you give chapter summaries and then three or four chapter samples. So it's like, by the time you write the proposal, you really could write the book, but that's not how you sell a book in memoir world. So, um, but I had to learn all that, you guys. I didn't know, like, yes, I was a writer and I had a nice career as a screenwriter, but um, books are a whole other thing. So I had to learn all of this. I had to get an agent, you know, like my Hollywood agents weren't book people. I wanted like a book agent. So once I got my agent, then, you know, I had to figure it all out. But um, I would say by the time, from the time we sold the book to my publisher, it was a pretty quick turnaround. I want to say I had like nine months to turn in my first draft. Do you feel like you were kind of having to sell yourself as a writer because there's no, you know, the story isn't written yet. So you have to sell people on the fact that I'm going to write a good book. No, because thankfully, by the time I was pitching my book, you know, I had some really um, great screen credits as a, as a screenwriter. And then I had also published so many of my essays and it, you know, it's, I was in the New York times and the Washington post and the LA times. I had a column at the Huffington post. I just had an essay recently in the Hollywood reporter, but you know, I've, like I said, I've made my living as a writer. So in some ways, I think that just gave me a step up because I was a proven entity. I wasn't some random, like, I want to write a book about being a widow. And 
and believe me, plenty of those books are out in the world and they do incredibly well. And the writers who write them are very talented, but I had, um, this experience, like a lifetime of experience as a, as a bonafide writer that gave me the credibility that it, well, I don't think it was such a risk for anybody to take on Melissa Gould. That makes total sense. It's obviously been received well, and you've been enjoying being able to share your story with the world. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, it's incredible to sit here and talk to you guys about this book. And it, these are the things that I feel keep Joel alive. I mean, maybe that's why you guys started this podcast. It keeps your husbands alive in a way. I just, it's, it's really been this gift that I have this book out in the world and it's, you know, giving me the ability to talk about Joel all the time. Yeah. And in a way, you were talking about the memory keepers. And at some point in time, you're going to be gone. And so you as a memory keeper will be gone. But the book will live on as a memory keeper for you. So I think a lot of people should write down their stories, even if it doesn't get published, so that their stories can be the memory keeper for their person. That is such a beautiful idea and such a great thing to say. And it's funny, because before I even knew I was going to start writing essays that resulted in a way in this book, I was making these books for Sophie. Like I have, I mean, it's sort of sad and depressing, but like I made a, put a book together of all of the emails when Joel was in the hospital for those three weeks of like the emails that I sent out, that friends were sending out on my behalf. And then the responses that we got, because I felt like I, it was so surreal, you guys, that I needed like a touchstone. I needed to know that it was, even though it felt surreal, that these were real things that were actually happening. And so I put together a book of all of those emails interspersed with like pictures and things like that. But I'm so glad I have it because that is a memory, you know, of like that time that was so devastating. But I thought maybe one day Sophie would want that, that she'd want to look and see like, what was that like when daddy was in the hospital? And then when she was graduating high school, I put another book together where I asked friends of ours to send us their memories of Joel because we only had ours and I wanted her to hear from other people. And so that was another book I put together and I'm so grateful that I have that one too. But this was all before, no, at that time I was writing essays, but yeah, I I wasn't like thinking, oh, I'm going to write a book one day. So now we have a a couple of things, but I feel like it's, there is a need for our grief and our experience to be witnessed. And so those emails, it's like, I experienced this, but I need other people to be able to witness how people showed up for me and also how devastating and how hard it was in that moment. And I can totally, like, it does sound kind of morose, but I can totally understand why you would want to gather those things and have those because your brain wasn't working. I'm sure at that time either. It was so. Yeah. But somewhere inside, I was like, I need to remember this. Like I want to, you know, so yeah, but it is morose. And it makes me feel sad for what's going on again with COVID that people are losing their loved ones and there's no witness to it. There's no meal train. There's no, or maybe there is a meal train, but you know what I mean? Like nobody's coming to the house and just sitting with you. Like you can't, you can't even be, you can't go to the hospital. You can't have a bunch of people go and say goodbye. You're FaceTiming your goodbye to people. Yeah. I mean, it's just so tragic, man. Oh, Mel has a question. What are some of the movies that you have written for? I wrote on a lot of TV shows, a lot of Disney channel stuff, Lizzie McGuire, Sorry, I should have said what shows, not movies. Sorry that 
Well, that's okay. Um, I wrote a lot of Lizzie McGuire. I, my very first show was Bill Nye, the science guy. Yes. <laughs> that was our youth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that, um, that was, those are like my bookends. I started on Bill Nye, the science guy. I ended on Lizzie McGuire. Tons of stuff in between, like Beverly Hills 90210 and Party of Five. And oh, man. A bunch of Disney movies and a lot of Did stuff. Did you do High School Musical? I was going to say, we have a fun fact about High School Musical. Mm-hmm. Oh, I want to, no, I did not, but that was like, that was around uh, my time at Disney Channel. But what's your fun fact? I am the piano hand double for all three movies. <laughs> that is crazy. Yes. Yeah. So who were you, was Vanessa Hudgens, like, was she playing the piano? No, well, the, the actor, what was her name? The character's name is Kelsey, so she was the piano player in the movie. And so they tried to teach her some piano, and it was not quick enough, so they just called me in. That is so funny. Yeah, I didn't know any better because I lived in Utah at the time, and Salty Pictures is who Disney contracts when they come out here. And they want part of the deal is they like don't put our name in the credits, so I could be lying to you. But yeah, they're like, if you want this gig, do it. <laughs> I have a story like that about Disney too, where I did not get credit for something that's huge, but that's okay. Yeah, that's how it goes. <laughs> I have nothing cool about me. I have never been in anything fancy. Um, but Anita, you have won. What is that thing you won? It was like the World oh. Xterra Games or something. <laughs> it was on the cover of a magazine once. Yeah, it's my claim to fame. That's all I got. You don't have to be in shape to be a musician or a writer. We have one very special question to ask you, Melissa. Okay. If you answer this incorrectly, we will throw you <laughs> off the side of the drawbridge. What is okay. your favorite cheese and why? Okay, you happen to be asking me at a time when I've like given up cheese. <gasps> <laughs> Our hearts, we are sorry for your loss. <laughs> but Anita's in the same boat. I'm in the same boat right now. Well, you know, it's not that I actively have given it up, yeah. but there was a time pre-COVID where I would have happy hour like all the time with my girlfriends like friday we would do happy hour and it would just be cheese and wine basically um and i think i i overdid it like i just i can't believe i'm gonna say but i got sick of the cheese well did your stomach get sick of the cheese like does it get upset when you No, i don't have that issue i don't have that issue but i mean i loved a good brie I like a good Jarlsberg. Mm. I like a smoked Gouda. Everybody likes a That's smoked Gouda. That's the most Gouda. popular, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. really? That's yes. hilarious. Everybody says that. We've never had a Jarlsberg. I don't think anybody's ever used that one. Oh, so, really? Yeah. I'm I'm down for it, except for right now. Not, but <laughs> I'll eat it for you. Okay, thanks. Okay, that was you. You passed. You really actually can't answer that question wrong. We just try and make you feel scared. So that you're on your toes. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Melissa. We hope you guys have found this episode interesting. And if they want to find your book, where do they find it? They can find Widowish wherever books are sold. And um, you can find out more about the book. You can find out more about me on my website, which is widowish.com. Okay. So just, you know, the internet, you can find everything if you just go there. And we will link to that in our show notes as well. Perfect. Remember to check out the Widow Wives Club, answer all of the questions and come be a part of us. Also check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash WWDN. Mel, you want to talk about tacos? If you want to buy us some tacos, go to buymeacoffee.com slash widow we do now. And until we talk to you next time, I'm Anita. 
I'm Mel. I'm Melissa. And we're just two young widows and one young widow who had the worst of both worlds. And we're trying to figure out, widow, we we do do now. This is my favorite thing to discuss with you. Tell me, what is it? One of my favorite things. I do enjoy tacos and cheese and dogs. This is about how you cannot pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a phone plan, especially when you're a widow, your person is dead, you might have kids, you might need another option, and you just want your phone to work, you want unlimited texting and service, and you want it to be like 25 bucks a month. It blows my mind that they have plans that start at $15 a month. That is so cheap. And the cool thing is, is it uses other 5G networks, and so you don't have to pay extra for that, and you still get great service. Yep, Anita and I have traveled all over and I have used my phone. So I highly recommend it. And my mom's even on it. When my dad died, we put his phone down to the cheapest plan, which is $15 a month. And I think my mom's on the $20 a month plan and it's so worth it. It's so much cheaper than what we were all paying before. So I highly recommend it if you're on a budget or not. Who cares? Ryan Reynolds is in charge of the company and they send you free stickers with Ryan Reynolds temporary tattoos. It's kind of the best. So if somebody wants to sign up, what can they do, Anita? Go to trymintmobile.com slash WWDN. Seriously, you guys, such a great idea. Save yourself some money. And if you're worried about losing data or having any changes with your phone, not going to happen. They walk you through it. Everything's fine. It's the easiest process of all time. Again, that's trymintmobile.com slash WWDN.